All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 133, Edwin's Ambitions. And don't forget that this is the last week for you to get the BHP holiday package. Now, you might be saying, hey, this isn't the holiday season anymore. And you'd be right. But I still have one last holiday-themed members episode that I want to release. So I figured it's only fair to extend the package until that was released. So if you want those cool buttons and stickers, you better jump on it. And as always, you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Okay, on to history. When we last left Edwin, Bishop Paulinus finally had his prize. He convinced the great king of Northumbria, the Bretwalda, Edwin, to abandon his gods and convert to Christianity. It had been a long and hard road for the bishop. Failed assassinations, war, marriage, magical visions, and some pretty astoundingly rude arguments regarding the weather had all been brought to bear in order to get this king to convert. But at last, he was successful. And on Easter 627-ish, the dates are a bit soupy, Edwin was baptized. Again, Baptism is a pretty commonplace thing for us, but think about how strange this ritual is from the outside. The sources agree that, unlike many of our modern baptisms, this was done old school. That meant it was done outside, in a natural body of water. So Edwin, in April, in northern England, was expected to walk into a body of water and then somehow fight back the shivering, teeth-chattering, and shrinkage, and relax into the arms of a Christian, and then let himself be submerged underwater, only to be lifted out when that Christian was good and ready. And keep in mind that Edwin had only recently avoided assassination, something that his Werod and his courtiers were also all too aware of. And we saw how he reacted to that. He brought total destruction down upon everyone in Wessex suspected of being involved in the attempt. This was not a man to be trifled with. And he also strikes me as a man who is, how can I put this nicely? Who was a little bit highly strung and sensitive to danger. And I imagine that was also the case for his trusted warrior companions, whom we are told were fiercely loyal and protective of him. And yet, Here was the great king in a situation where he looked like he might be drowned by this strange holy man from a foreign cult. And why did he need to be bathed in the first place? Was this Christian saying that he was dirty? That's kind of rude. I mean, we're talking about an era where these concepts were not only new, but they were also poorly understood by the Anglo-Saxons. Remember how we talked about the sudden appearance of priestly garments on recent converts? probably because they couldn't distinguish between the religious tenets they were expected to follow and the vestments of the priest class. Or how about the fact that the Anglo-Saxons could go years without seeing a man of the cloth in the early conversion period? Misconceptions were rampant in these times. And all of this was new. Sure, it might have been explained to Edwin, but he might never have seen it. Best case scenario, he saw it when his daughter was baptized but we have no record that he actually witnessed it. And for everyone else, this almost certainly was a new event. So what did they think? On a basic level, this might have seemed like simulated drowning in order to bind them to this new god, this god that was tortured to death on a cross. 
Afterwards, they were even expected to eat that god and drink his blood. I'm not sure if even the drowning god of the Iron Islands was that hardcore. But regardless, Edwin agreed to do this. And here we run into our first bit of controversy. Who did the baptism? The Historia says that Edwin was baptized by Rune, son of Urbgen, who was probably Urien of Regid. Now that would mean that Edwin was baptized by a Briton, and that's pretty cool. But I'm not entirely convinced. Not the least of which because the Historia was written by the British. So, you know, the scribes had a bit of a dog in that fight. But it's not impossible. After all, Edwin definitely had ties to the British, what with his time in exile. However, he was an Anglian king, and they had a history of not being overly excited about being subject, even in minor ways, to their British counterparts. Rather, they felt that it should go the other way. And besides, after all of that effort, I find it hard to imagine that Bishop Paulinus would just shrug it off and allow an emissary of the British church to perform the conversion especially considering that Augustine had only recently given that same church the finger and basically cursed them. Rome would call it a prophecy, but it sounds like a curse to me. So, handing over such a big get gives me pause. But Regid was a neighboring kingdom of Edwin's, and a powerful one at that. And King Urien of Regid was no slouch. So is it possible that Edwin agreed to allow the son of his powerful neighbor to baptize him? Sure. And it might have been politically savvy, and Paulinus might have just gone along with it because, you know, any conversion is better than no conversion. And that was certainly within the theme of the early conversion of Britain, namely the theme of, I don't care what you have to do to get them in the church. All I care about is bums on seats. Now that's not a direct quote, but it might as well have been. But as you probably guessed, Bede tells us another story. He tells us that Edwin was baptized by Bishop Paulinus. I know, you're shocked that Bede would say that. Just like the Historia has the potential for pro-British bias, Bede has the potential for pro-Rome bias and anti-British bias. But what Bede tells us is that Paulinus baptized Edwin in York at the River Glen. And while I like the idea of the union of the two northern kings through a brick conducting the baptism... Bede's version does seem a bit more likely. Paulinus had been trying everything he could do, right up to and including claiming credit for the birth of Edwin's daughter, and it just seems crazy to me that he'd miss out the opportunity to put this reluctant Bretwalda into the dunk tank. But whatever the case, both sources agree that this wasn't merely the baptism of Edwin. It was followed by a mass baptism. Thousands were brought in and baptized to this new religion. Kids, the elderly, the infirm, everyone would be brought in and converted. That must have been a hell of an Easter. And like we spoke about in earlier episodes, this was probably not eagerly accepted by everyone. Part of conversion was forsaking all other gods. That meant the gods of your parents and their parents. Gods who had served you well and taken care of you. Gods that would look favorably upon your children. And now, rather than going to Valhalla, you were spurning your powerful war gods for this strange death and drowning cult due to the efforts of the queen and her strange holy man. For some, this would have been a scary time. And even in our largely laissez-faire era of religion, I can't imagine this would be taken well. 
For example, I bet most of you would balk if I demanded that you all convert to Taoism and abandon your religions. People just don't like to give those things up, especially when it's been demanded by others. So, while we can't say for sure whether or not it was Paulinus or Rune conducting the baptisms, I think it's fair to say that they probably would have wanted to do pat-downs before getting too close to the forced converts. This seemed like dodgy business. But we don't see any indications of violence in Northumbria following the conversion. It seems to have gone off without a hitch. Or at least, if there was a hitch, no one wrote about it. So now there were two Christian kingdoms in Anglo-Saxon England. One in the south, Kent, and one in the north, Northumbria. Though just because they were both Christian, and both tied to Rome, doesn't mean that they were identical. Just like there were differences between the British church and the Roman church, there were also differences between the Northumbrian church and the Kentish church. This is because how the religion was organized in the kingdoms. Essentially, it was the bishops who were in control of how the religion was practiced and understood. They chose the lower clergy, provided mandates on behavior, and also dictated matters like the establishment of churches. They oversaw how the clergy was ministering to the public, and that had an enormous impact on the layperson's understanding of Christianity. Consequently, a bishop's personal view on Christianity would have a long-lasting impact on the state of Christianity in his diocese, because he would not only be dictating worship while he was around, he would also choose the men of the cloth that would carry out his vision, and would likely continue his vision even after his death. And as we learned about in earlier episodes, with the consecration of pagan sites and the like, you had other instances of differing methods of practice, even within the island. So things were becoming Christian in the north, yes, but that didn't mean that it would be the same sort of Christianity as you would see in Rome, or Wales, or even in Kent. But Edwin knew that he was expected to spread the religion throughout the island. In fact, Pope Boniface himself wrote to Edwin expressing his excitement at the possibility of extending Christianity into the, quote, nations at the extremities of the earth, end quote. He was talking, of course, about Northumbria and the surrounding kingdoms. That's how remote the Anglian kingdoms were. But if Edwin wanted to get in good with this new god, and, probably more importantly, with his new Roman and Frankish brothers, he probably would need to carry out the Pope's wishes. Furthermore, there were now two seas in Britain, one in Kent and one in Northumbria. And Edwin was nothing if not ambitious, and I sincerely doubt that he would have been satisfied if Kent ended up holding the dominant sea of Britain, especially considering that Kent was still powerful and independent. And, when it was written about later, it was specifically excluded from the list of kingdoms that Edwin stretched his influence over. Kent was not a kingdom to be ignored, and it was probably his biggest rival on the island. So getting out there and converting East Anglia, which was pretty much on the doorstep of Kent and his allies, could possibly ensure that he would be the Bretwalda in both temporal and spiritual matters. And then Kent could just, you know, jog on. But like I said, the Anglian kingdoms were remote, and to complicate matters, from the record it looks like the Angles were much more likely to hold on to their old religion and less likely to adopt Christianity than their Kentish contemporaries, possibly due to the fact that they didn't have as much Frankish influence as their neighbors to the south. And outside of Northumbria, that reticence was even stronger, especially in Mercia, 
which was about the biggest backwater of England at this point in history. Sorry, Brummies. And Mercia would actually turn out to be something of a problem for the growing Anglo-Saxon church. Honestly, that kingdom was no minor matter for the church or her allies. It was a bit of a bruiser. So it looks like before Edwin tried to tackle that particular issue, he went for the lower-hanging fruit. Namely, East Anglia. Now that shouldn't be too hard, right? They were a coastal kingdom, they were close to Kent, and they were also close to Northumbria. It was something of a pincer movement, and it was also sort of a middle kingdom between Northumbria and Kent. So if Edwin could get in there first, it's possible that he would be taking the initiative away from King Aidbert of Kent. And Edwin had an advantage in this. He had a long history with East Anglia. After all, Raidwald was the one who put him on his throne. And Raidwald's son, Erpwald of East Anglia, was now reigning as king. So he had a family connection that he could possibly exploit to bring Christianity into this kingdom. Now, I might be putting a pious spin on this. There's another possibility here that might have been driving Edwin's decision to try and convert East Anglia. Don't forget that Raidwald was Bretwalda before Edwin, and East Anglia was powerful enough to defeat the army of Northumbria when it was under the control of Aethelfrith. And actually, Aethelfrith had been undefeated until that very moment. And as you know, Aethelfrith was Edwin's predecessor, and he had been cut down by Raidwald himself. So it's pretty clear to us that Aethelfrith underestimated this small coastal and marshy kingdom. Edwin might have determined that he should not make the same mistake, and decided to exercise some power in order to ensure that King Erpwald wouldn't go seeking his father's title of Bretwalda, and also Edwin's head. So, the same year that Edwin converted, 627, he traveled to East Anglia and converted Erpwald. We aren't given details. We aren't told what arguments were made or whether there were promises, threats, or bribes. But don't forget who Edwin was. This guy was a gangster who was thoroughly battle-tested. And Erpwald wasn't even supposed to be king. It was probably Regan Hera who was supposed to succeed his father. But Regan Hera died at the Battle of River Idol. And I can't help but wonder if Erpwald was simply outmatched by the ruthless northern king, and he was forced into submission. Whatever the case, though, the conversion occurred. And when you think about it, what Edwin did here was extremely cheeky. I mean, let's sum it all up. Raidwald rescued him from death. Literally rescued him from death. And then he fought a war that resulted in the death of the heir apparent of East Anglia, Raidwald's own son. And rather than taking Northumbria for himself following that battle, Raidwald installed Edwin on the throne. And, quite possibly due to an odd visitation, Edwin seems to have promised obedience, among other things. And Edwin had been a model client king of East Anglia for the years that followed. He didn't go against Raidwald, not even on religious matters, despite his Christian wife. And then, Raidwald died, and another of his sons, Erpwald, took the throne. And suddenly now Edwin was Christian, and more than that, he was pushing Raidwald's heir and his kingdom to convert to the religion that the great Bretwalda had spurned all those years ago. So much for loyalty, right? But the conversion happened, and Edwin and Paulinus went to work converting East Anglia, and Lindsay for that matter. 
which meant that the Northumbrian clergy set about suppressing any pagan practices they found and bringing the people of East Anglia under the dominion of the Northern Church. And as far as Edwin was concerned, this was great news for him. And it was good news for the church. After all, it now had its two sees, which it had wanted since Pope Gregory the Great. And to Edwin's delight, one was located in his own kingdom. While York wasn't yet an archbishopric, it was on its way, and if he could demonstrate his power, he might be able to formally break from the Kentish church. But already, functionally, he basically had his own separate northern province for the Anglo-Saxon church. And with the exception of Kent, and maybe Essex, all of the Christian Anglo-Saxon kingdoms on the east coast of Britain would now be under the control of Edwin and his church. But here is where we see the importance of all the groundwork that Edwin laid out before he converted because Erpwald had none of that groundwork. For example, we don't hear of Erpwald allowing priests to minister in his kingdom beforehand, nor do we hear of having his counselors signed on before he converted. Edwin arrived, and Erpwald converted. From the record, it sounds like he wasn't given much leeway, at least not the amount of leeway that Paulinus had given Edwin. And honestly, Edwin was not a man to be refused. He was, well, tough. Conversely, we don't hear of anything regarding any battles that Erpwald won. All we hear about him is that he had recently won an internal dynastic struggle with his brother, or half-brother depending on who you're reading, a guy by the name of Sigebert, and that resulted in Sigebert's exile. But win or lose, a dynastic struggle so recently within his kingdom probably put him on shaky ground. A strong king, this was not. And it seems like this fact wasn't lost on those who were forced to convert along with their king. Because less than a year after Edwin forced Erpwald to go for a dip, he was murdered by a pagan by the name of Rickbert. Who is Rickbert, you might be asking? And that's a great question. And it's a question that's been asked for a very long time. Because we don't know. He might have been from a rival dynastic line. Or he might have just been an outraged pagan. Whoever he was... After murdering Erpwald, it looks like he took the throne of East Anglia, and the kingdom once again returned to paganism after flirting with the idea of being Christian. Now, it's possible that this regicide wasn't because of religion, but rather was due to distress that their great and ancient kingdom was now being dominated by a foreign king. Don't forget that East Anglia could well be the first of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, so there's some pride at play here. But frankly, we don't know for sure. But if nothing else, you should probably be coming away from this realizing that Aethelbert of Kent, Raedwald of East Anglia, and Edwin of Northumbria weren't wishy-washy or anything of the sort, but rather they were incredibly savvy and were doing what they could to avoid the fates of Sabert of Essex and Erpwald of East Anglia. Because conversion was serious business. Though to be fair, neither Sabert nor Erpwald seemed to have had much of a choice. So, yeah, that whole East Anglia conversion thing seems to have been a bit of a debacle for Edwin in the end. Had he been more patient, maybe he could have had a client kingdom, both spiritually and militarily. But instead, his rapid power play resulted in an already compliant king being murdered, a failed expansion of the Northumbrian church, and now a new king, Rickbert, was ruling. And this king wasn't exactly friendly to Edwin's new god. And the fact that the assassin who killed Edwin's own ally now sat on the throne 
was probably also a sign to the other kingdoms that Edwin was not as powerful as they might have thought. Not only did he fail to have control over East Anglia, but the regicide went unanswered, and Rickbert's continued rule probably indicated that he and his allies were powerful enough to push back against Northumbrian domination, and that the kingdom was no longer in his pocket, and probably from the Northumbrian point of view, was quite dangerous. Moreover, the defiance that East Anglia had shown to Northumbria probably broke the appearance of invincibility that Edwin had enjoyed. And losing the support of East Anglia, which certainly must have provided Edwin a degree of military surety, might have given Edwin's neighbors a few ideas. For example, you have Mercia, who were still staunchly pagan, were chafing at Northumbrian domination, and were looking to create a hegemony of their own. And they seem to have started to get a bit braver at this point in history. So yeah, that really could have gone better. However, it was something of a banner year for King Rickbert. And actually, despite the setback, bloodshed, and Edwin's probable indigestion, the church was still making gains. Over in Francia, Sigebert, that was Raidwald's other son, you know, the one who was forced into exile by Erpwald, well, he had also converted to Christianity. Raidwald and his pagan queen must have been rolling over in their graves. But this probably was a smart move politically. Being a devout pagan in exile wasn't going to do Sigebert any favors. But if he could gain support from the Franks by converting, maybe he could take the throne from Rickbert. And he was also face-to-face with the advantages that conversion could bring to his kingdom. We're told that, in particular, he was impressed by how some of these holy men could read and write, and how that there were schools that could teach these skills. And upon seeing these boons, and after being converted, he became a devout follower of Christianity. And unfortunately for Edwin, Francia and Kent were close, which meant that he would almost certainly look to Canterbury rather than York for guidance should he return to Britain and take the throne of East Anglia. But whatever, Edwin had things to do, places to conquer. He already had control of neighboring kingdoms like Elmet and Lindsay, and by taking over Elmet, a door had opened up to the west, and Edwin would not let that go unused. So at some point around here, Edwin marched and took control of the Isle of Man, presumably in order to gain strategic control of their stubby little cats. And he also took Anglesey. And there, just off the coast of Anglesey, at Puffin Island, Edwin met his old foster brother, Cadwallon. Do you remember Cadwallon? He was the grandson of King Iago of Gwyneth, back when Edwin was in exile. Though, Cadwallon was no longer the grandson of the king. He was the king of Gwyneth himself. Can you imagine how Cadwallon must have felt? I mean, the betrayal he must have sensed. Here you had a man that his father and grandfather saved from death at the hands of Aethelfrith, a move that in all likelihood led to war between Gwyneth and Northumbria and resulted in the deaths of a multitude of monks, nobility, and possibly even King Iago. Edwin owed so much to the men of North Wales, and yet here he was, with an army, marching on his former allies and bringing war upon them in the same manner that Aethelfrith had. Forced to retreat to the island, probably taking shelter in a wooden fort, he must have looked across the battlements and thought, how dare you do this to us after all we've done for you? And Edwin, looking back at him, seems to have had a simple reply. My guess is it was essentially, I don't give a f**k. You have something I want. Give it to me. 
now. And the fact of the matter is, judging by the way he treated Erpwald, it was pretty clear that any sort of loyalty Edwin may have had for someone didn't extend to that person's progeny, especially if said heir was standing in Edwin's way. And Cadwathlin was certainly doing that, since Edwin wanted control of, well, he kind of wanted control of everything. And Cadwathlin seems to have not been too eager to just hand over his kingdom. So Edwin did what you would expect him to do to anyone who refused him. He attacked the Welsh king, took his lands, and Cadwathlin was forced to flee to Ireland and exile. So now Northumbria had control of pretty much all of the north down to Lindsay and extended its power over to the Irish Sea. Mercia, East Anglia, and the other southern kingdoms must have been extremely concerned. And speaking of East Anglia, three years after his brother's murder, Sigebert returned to his homeland. Again, we aren't given details, but we are told about his impressive military ability, so my guess is that he took the kingdom by force. And Sigebert was actually pretty damn smart. Erpwald lost his life by forcing Christianity on the people. And it looks like Sigebert didn't intend to be quite so heavy-handed. And instead, he threw the pagans a bone by splitting the kingdom with his kinsman, Egric, who might have still been pagan, and may have even been another son of Raidwald, but the genealogies aren't overly clear on that point. But regardless, we now have two kings of East Anglia, one who was Christian, and one that was almost certainly pagan. So that's fun. And as for Rickbert, we don't know what became of him. He appeared from nowhere, and he vanished the same way. He might have died. I mean, being king at this point in time was a bit dangerous, but we don't know. And speaking about danger, Sigebert must have been watching over his shoulder, because being a Christian in East Anglia was still pretty dodgy business, especially for devout kings that were focused on converting their people. And Sigebert was certainly that. He even allowed the Archbishop of Canterbury to appoint a Burgundian as the Bishop of the East Angles, and that happened about at 631. So he probably wasn't making any friends among the pagans in his kingdom. And also, we can see this as a sign that Edwin's power in the region was certainly collapsing, and Kent and Canterbury were gaining momentum. So this wasn't great for Edwin. But like I said, this was dodgy business for Sigebert too, and it wasn't too long before King Sigebert stepped down to enter a monastery, and King Egric became the sole king of East Anglia. Now, was he forced to step down? Maybe. That isn't exactly uncommon, and entering monasteries as a way to avoid having your head separated from your shoulders by an angry mob isn't unprecedented. On the other hand, we also hear about how pious he was. Seriously, we're going to hear more about Sigebert, and this guy definitely sounds devout. So maybe Sigebert simply realized that he accomplished his goals, retaking the kingdom from Rickebert, and now he wanted to dedicate his life to Christ. But we can't say either way for certain. What I can say is that Edwin's conversion and following power grab resulted in a complete reshuffling of power in East Anglia, and a fair amount of bloodshed. And that was probably not what Bishop Paulinus had in mind when he baptized the Bretwalda. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we're on Twitter. Just look for at britishpodcast. And we're on Tumblr, not to mention we have the forums. In fact, you can find all of this stuff over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. 
And also, while you're there, click the link to our free iOS app. It's pretty neat. All right, thanks for listening.